0: Good morning, Veritas. I'm Mark, one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of opening God's Word. Uh, if you're new and maybe you're here because you know someone that's getting baptized or someone invited you, uh, we are in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6 and 7. And my hope for you is thats is that you'll be less confused but more in awe of Jesus than you've ever been. And so Um, We're going to get right to it. There's a lot here. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 6 and work our way through the text. Uh, So if you have a Bible, you can open it or turn it on there. All the verses are going to be on the screen as well, so you can follow along. So let's start in Revelation chapter 6. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Come. And yeah, let's, let's pause here, because if you weren't here last week, you're, you're stepping into the middle of a story. Remember, G- John was in the throne room of God. There was a scroll that nobody could open. He starts crying. Who's worthy to open the scroll? And Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, comes and grabs the scroll and starts opening it up. So here it is. Verse 2, I looked, there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror. In order to conquer. So, this first seal on the scroll that Jesus slits and begins to open, it's war. Verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. The second seal, Law and order is taken away and civil war breaks out. Verse five, when I, he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. The third seal is... Scales come out. Uh, this is a measuring device with the two trays. And, and this has something to do with the scarcity of food. Famine hits the earth. The prices here are probably 10 to 12 times the normal value. And then he says, do not harm the oil and wine. What does that mean? Uh, possibly that the wealthy will kind of be protected. The, owner, the landowners of all the olive trees and, and wineries are going to be protected. Or maybe it has to do with... These are the products you would use to to purify water and uh, for cooking bread and some of the essentials. We don't know what for sure that means, but verse 7, he continues, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague and by the wild animals of the earth. The fourth seal is death. So let me ask you this question at this point in the text. If, you, if you're confused and there's a lot of imagery here, what does the opening of this scroll sound like to you? War, civil war, famine, death. Sounds to me like another bad day on planet earth, right? does that sound like to you? I want you to think about What the first century hearers of this letter would have lived through by this time. In 64 AD, you had the great fire of Rome, that Rome burns down and the emperor Nero blames the Christians and has many of them killed. Or 68 to 70 AD, this two-year period where four emperors, four Roman emperors were killed. Could you imagine if four presidents were assassinated within a, just a two-year period, in Americans, we would probably say definitely the apocalypse, right? Or think about in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, the place of worship, the Holy of Holies, was torn down and destroyed. All the lineage records are burned up, gone, sacrifice system gone. Or you could think of 79 A.D., when Mount Vesuvius erupted in southern Italy, one of the greatest natural disasters to ever hit Europe. So the hearers are listening to these scrolls being unrolled, and you can hear them like us saying, yes, earthquake, Turkey, Syria, death. I mean, that sounds like today. Now, it, re- it might refer to a future, even greater kind of calamity, but Understand this, and this is the main point. Here's a question. What is the cause of all these calamities? Is it the random, impersonal forces of Mother Nature that are causing this devastation on the earth? Think about this. This book is called Revelation. What is God revealing to us, his people? to the first century audience and to us a couple thousand years later. Here's the first point, and there's going to be five points as we work our way through the text. Point number one is this. Chaos is only chaos when you factor Jesus out of the equation. Here's what I mean. Chaos is complete disorder and confusion, Chaos is only chaos when you factor Jesus out of the equation. I want you to think of something in your life right now that feels out of control. Maybe it's something in the future that's causing you to be anxious or fearful. If you take Jesus out of that picture, you should be afraid, right? You have a lot to be anxious about. If life is just random and out of control and no one's in charge of this, it's just a bunch of random kill or be killed kind of things happening on earth, right? What hope do you have? But what is our hope as Christians? Remember that song we just sang? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? What is my reason for not fearing evil? For not fearing evil? You know, red horses causing civil war and death. What is my reason for not fearing? For you are with me. For you are with me. The good shepherd is with me. Jesus is the one opening the scroll. Jesus is the one that is exalted over all the chaos in your life. In my life, there's a God that is over it. We refer to this as the sovereignty of God. Now, is this troubling or comforting to you? If you would say, that's kind of troubling to me. I'm kind of fine if it's just random, but the fact that now I know that Jesus is the one causing this, I kind of have a problem with that. If that's you, you're not alone and you're in pretty good company because look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. Okay, the fifth seal, John gets a different perspective. Now he sees the altar and all these men and women who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. Verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? This is crazy. I can't even believe this is in the Bible. These martyrs in heaven are impatient with God. They're frustrated with God because he's waiting so long to bring justice. Like these four scrolls, and then all of a sudden it stops, the fifth scroll or fifth seal, he gets this different view, and these guys are like, how long? You're just gonna, God, you're just gonna let this happen? If you've ever prayed that prayer, You're in great company. Godly people pray with sort of this impatience. How long, Lord? Some of you have maybe been a victim of pretty hard stuff pain, suffering, crimes done against you, grief. And what does God say to them? It's interesting, these these people are, they're confused, but they're not angry. They refer to God as holy and just. They know that God is up to something bigger. But really their question is, how can God be just if evil is not punished? Verse 11, so they were each given a white robe symbolizes purity they're clean now and they're victorious and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been that is one of the strangest forms of encouragement that i've ever heard like hey don't worry hey be patient there are more that are going to be killed. More people need to be beheaded. Calm down. How is that encouraging? Try that on your friends next time. Be patient, more people need to die. Just rest. Even tells just rest. Rest. They've been waiting a while, haven't they? More Christians have been killed in the last 150 years than in the previous 18 centuries of church history. And they are still waiting today. And God is still saying, just wait. There are more that need to die for the gospel. And it's almost like he knows the end of the story. Until their number is complete. Like there's a number. And then I'm coming. And then I'm going to step in. It all points to the sovereignty of God here. But the second point here is it's okay to be confused. But rest in this truth. God will bring justice. Do you believe that? That's the tension of revelation. That's the tension of the scene in heaven. Will God bring justice? And here's just another question as we read the next text. Verse 12 here. How is this suffering strategy, this whole strategy of sending out these horses to cause devastation, how in the world does God think that's a good strategy here? The suffering strategy. I, I don't get that. Verse 12, then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs. When shaken by a high wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It is well... The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. It comes from this verse. And though er- and every mountain and island was moved from its place. The sixth seal right here is the great day of the Lord that we read about in Isaiah chapter two and in Joel chapter two. Now, I'm going to reference a lot of scriptures that aren't gonna come up on the screen. You'll wanna write those down. Go back and read those later, okay? Just, and what you will find is that this language is the Apostle John is pretty much repeating what the Old Testament prophets have said. This is actually not that confusing to the original audience. They would know, oh yeah, the sun turns black. That's Isaiah 2, Joel 2. References back to this, uh, these, these great prophets. Here's a question. Does this refer to one final earthquake? all the tectonic plates shift at the same time on earth and causes a massive earthquake that's global? Does this sun turning black refer to volcanoes erupting and volcanic ash sort of darkening the sky? Does this stars falling refer to a meteor shower or some kind of global cataclysmic event? Or, does it refer to just the ongoing judgment of God throughout history or both? I don't know, but it kind of doesn't matter because don't miss the point of what he says here. The response: Listen to the response of the people to these calamities, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person Hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? How do the people on earth respond to the judgments of God? They say, hide us from his face. In the Bible, God's face is symbolic of his presence, his person. That's why in number six the priests were say that may the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. These people are saying, We don't want his face. We're hiding from his face. We're running to the caves. That is the response of people to these calamities on earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Because you think, oh man, those people in the end times, they don't get it. They need to be running to Jesus and they're running to the caves. Let me ask you a question. How did people respond to this most recent global pandemic? I don't know about you, but I've just seen people, they came out of their caves, their basements, their homes, and they were just so repentant. I mean, people turn to Jesus. It's been amazing to see how just the news has just been like telling everyone to go to church and, and just like preaching the gospel. Every night, news anchors just like highlighting stories of baptisms and conversions. and. Re- I don't know about you, but I feel like somebody had a fast forward button on this, this careening Into rebellion against God. And things that even like three or four years ago. You'd be like, I I can't believe someone would even think that. Now it's like, they're not only saying it, but they're promoting it. And everyone else is like nodding their heads like, yeah, that's how it is. So what is revelation teaching us? Third point. Don't be surprised when unbelievers respond to trials with a growing hatred of God. Don't be surprised by that. That's what John is telling these first century Christians who are dying for the gospel. Like, hey guys, it's going to get bad and that's kind of how it is. That's normal. But the story turns are you ready for the story to turn a little bit because the story gets really good here in chapter 7 after this i saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree some of you are thinking, oh, see, I know the Bible's not true because it still thinks the world is flat, four corners of the earth, okay? Well, guess what? I looked on my Apple phone this morning on my iPhone and uh, looked at the weather, and it says the sunrise was at, I don't know what time, <laughs> this morning. Uh, so my phone's wrong because the sun doesn't rise, right? We know that, the earth, uh, anyway. Uh, so, okay, this is a, obviously, this is a metaphor. This is a picture. These four angels, they're restraining the judgment, they're holding it back. And there's a different angle that John sees on all this judgment that's happening. These angels now are on a leash. God's saying, hold it. Don't just like totally destroy the earth. Hold it back. Why? Why is God restraining judgment? Verse 2. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God, he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of God on their foreheads. Where have we heard this language before? An angel going around and putting a seal on the foreheads of God's people. Where have we heard this before? Has anyone in Veritas, I'm actually curious about this. Like this week, maybe this past week, how many of you read the book of Ezekiel? Did anyone crack that book open? Like, okay, oh yeah, literally like one, two, maybe. That's so cool. Ezekiel 9. And we don't have time to turn there. Ezekiel 9, you can read it. Here's what happens in Ezekiel 9. The temple, God's people in the Old Testament, it is a hot mess. We've got leaders that are abusing people, exploiting people. They're getting rich off the poor. They're lying about God. And God says, I'm done with this. And an angel comes and goes around and he says, I want you to put a seal on the foreheads of the true Israelites. Because you know this, right? Like in America, there's a lot of cultural Christians. But that's not like the people of God, right? The people who call themselves Christians are not. It was the same in Israel. Like everyone like, we're Israelites, right? We celebrate Hanukkah. Of course, we're Passover. Feast of Tabernacles. We're Israelites. And God's like, no, you're not. I want to separate, go around and put a seal on the foreheads of all the true Israelites. Now in Ezekiel 9, How did the angel know who the true Israelites were? The people you're going to mark are the people that groan over the sin in the world. Those are the true Israelites. Those that see the evil and they just groan and they repent. And then he says, mark those with a seal that really know me and just kill the rest. So judgment is happening. But what we see in chapter 7 is, but it's being restrained. Why? Because God is busy putting seals on the foreheads of those who are his true followers. We're going to get to chapter 13 where there's a different kind of seal on Satan's followers, right? Mark of the beast and all that. We'll get to that chapter 13. Stick around for that. But verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, which is weird because usually you don't hear numbers. If you're like, how many people were at Veritas this morning? And you're like, I heard like over a thousand people. You're like, I was kind of hoping for a number. Well, that's what I heard. But then he gives exact numbers. Like I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. And on it goes. Won't read them all. Do you remember those boring parts of the Old Testament that you skipped over? That list of names in Numbers chapter 1? Remember that? As it turns out, that list is pretty important. Because what is that list of names? It's a military census of Israel. So they're recording the names. There's actually exact numbers. But here we have... 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 144,000, which is common Hebrew language for making a point. We'll get to that in a second. It's a strange list. This revelation, it's strange because there's some tribes that are missing and others that are inserted. And it starts with the tribe of Judah, which is weird. But it's not weird, because we learned last time that the Lion of Judah is there, right? So the tribe of Judah now goes first. John is hearing this this massive army, but this is a weird, different kind of army than the Old Testament. Because it's not just Israelites, it's it's different. Verse 9. After this I looked, and what does he see? Remember, he hears the number. And he turns around and looks. And what does he see? There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. It was actually more than you could ever number. It's kind of like Genesis 32 where God says to Abraham, your offspring will be as vast as the sand on the sea. That's the kind of language we see here in Revelation. This vast army of God, multi-ethnic, diverse people of God, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. We know about this Palm Sunday. Palm branch, that symbol of victory, peace, eternal life, that they would wave before the Passover and in comes King Jesus on the donkey, right? And the we know that this huge army of God. And who is this great army of God? It's not just the Israelites, it's this multi ethnic people of God 144,000, symbolic of the 12 tribes. 12 times 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, 10 times 10 times 10, this Hebrew kind of metaphor of completeness, wholeness. Who is this people of God that is being raised up in the midst of the calamities that are being held back? Who is this people of God, this army of God? I don't know about you, but I'm in the Lord's army. Are you in the Lord's army? Remember the song they sing? Who learned this song? I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I may never march in the infantry. Ride in the cavalry. Am I doing the right songs? We had to learn it in Spanish. We went to Guatemala. Like, I don't know. I don't know what any of that means. Like, I can lead you to Jesus in Spanish. But I don't know what a hammer is, right? Uh, we had to learn this. Uh, we were going. Uh, here's the point. Here's the point. Do you see the contrast of chapter six and chapter seven? The trials and the judgments of chapter seven end with the question, 6:17. Who is able to stand in the judgment of God, in the wrath of God? And chapter seven answers the question. Here's who can stand the victorious army of God sealed with a sign on their forehead. That's who can stand. Chapter six, judgments mean more martyrs will be killed. Chapter seven, good news. God is restraining it so that more can be saved. And this strategy that God is using is genius. Why is it so smart for God to use suffering in the life of a Christian. This teaching is all over the New Testament. And if you don't have a theology of suffering, you will not stand. And when things get hard, you will run away from God if you do not understand the point of suffering in your life. When the heat gets turned up, the gold gets purified and one of the things that i love about this cultural moment for us it's getting harder and harder to stand on the fence with one foot in the world and one foot in jesus and what used to give you a little bit of social credibility when you dropped the Jesus card and I'm a Christian and the little fish. Now, it's time to choose sides. The heat is getting turned up. And this is great news for the church. Here's the fourth point. Suffering makes Christians... Less popular, but more potent. Here's what I mean. One of our brave young souls and Veritas kids had a little class assignment. Take the Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream speech. And adapt it to be your dream. What's your dream for the world? And this brave young soul stood up in front of their class and they started the speech, I have a dream, that beautiful speech that King gave. And then she did the assignment and she, she turned it into her dream. And you know what her dream was? That one day, everyone we'll go to church and love Jesus. And her speech went on and it's beautiful. As she proclaimed Christ before her whole class. How do you think that speech was received? Here was one of the comments. That child is the reason we need to push diversity, equity, and inclusion. Radical Christians like her need to be silenced. We need to educate her on diversity. And this was coming from a self-proclaimed Christian who was offended by what she said. And for those of you who might be thinking, well, she did kind of come in a little strong, Is her dream not Revelation 7? Is her dream, as it turns out, prophetic? You want diversity without Jesus? What you're going to get is more war, more unrest. It's under the lordship of Jesus, who's not an American, not a Republican, not a Democrat. He's Lord. And we come under him and somehow every nation, tribe, tongue, this is the vision of revelation to us. And this kind of diversity just makes you want to cry. Verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. We're saying salvation, it's all Jesus. It's not because we were smarter than them and figured out, don't run to the rocks and hills, run to Jesus. Like, we're giving glory to God. We, we don't deserve this. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What is this great tribulation? Possibly a future tribulation, hard times. Possibly it's right now. But don't get hum- hung up on that. This is not a technical term. Second, Second Timothy 3.12 uses the same word when it says, don't be surprised. All people who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer tribulation. He's saying this is true for all Christians. Same word. Verse 15, for this reason There before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Ezekiel 34 talks about shepherds that exploit and abuse. But Revelation gives us a vision of a shepherd who protects, lays down his life, loves his flock, protects them, wipes their tears from their eyes. Here's the last point. No matter how bad it gets, our story always ends with a party. We're gonna see this repeated in the coming weeks, this repetition of suffering, God accomplishing his purpose, and it ends with a party. That's the cycle of revelation. As we end, I just wanna ask a couple questions. Number one, do you have the seal of God on your forehead? I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm asking, Are you a real follower of Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from your sin? To follow Jesus? Have you been baptized? Second question, when you look at the world, what do you see? Do you just see random chaos, random suffering? Or do you see Jesus Christ over it all? Do you see God's purpose of the church of God as your passion And the one thing in your life that will just matter forever, right? Church, while we wait, just like these people around the throne, what did they do while they waited? How did they rest while they waited? They kept singing. And that's how we're going to end. Let's pray together. Jesus, we trust you. We know that it's you that opens the scroll and you're worthy of that, Lord. You are exalted over our suffering. God, make me more courageous like our Veritas kids. Those areas of my life where I'm maybe conforming to the pattern of this world. God, give us as a church just a passion for Jesus. And as we hear these testimonies and see these baptisms, may it just stir our hearts to follow you, Jesus. Lead on, King eternal. Amen.